Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Pick Aside Podcast. My name is Joel Moran and I'm here with Jack Bartek and this is now episode 74. In this episode, we will talk about Blake Griffin signing with the Brooklyn Nets, Mike Conley finally making an all-star appearance, Kevin Porter Jr. being called up by the Houston Rockets, and we'll also talk about which teams will have a great second half to the NBA season. And we're also going to talk about the rise of NBA Top Shot. And for the football portion of this episode, we'll talk about the Chargers' new OC, Joe Lombardi, Chris Sims' quarterback rankings, reports of Jimmy Garoppolo maybe heading back to the New England Patriots, and if we're worried about the Cowboys now that they've signed Dak Prescott to a massive contract extension. And to end off the episode, we'll talk about the Washington football team and the New York Giants offseason this is now episode 74, and we had a little bit of a technical delay <laughs> in the beginning. There were two chairs here, but nobody was in them. But we're glad to have it back. It was a, it was a crazy ride. It was a crazy ride. <laughs> it was funny. It's just the chairs sitting there, and you could hear our voices, supposedly. So a funny start, but glad we're finally on now. Yeah, the, the streaming software is pretty buggy. And before we start, I just want to give a shout-out to newly people to new people who have reviewed and rated our podcast this is what they had to say so the title of this review was the goats by jicky jackson listen to every episode and don't plan on stopping love their versatility to talk hoops and football while also keeping listeners entertained throughout the entirety keep up the good work boys we appreciate that jicky jackson we appreciate your kind words and this is another review. I have to get the picture right now. So the other review, I'm pretty sure, is from... Let me see. It's from King Roy 23 The title of the review is called Great Podcast. And the description is, I love this podcast... I'm even starting to favor this show over some of the mainstream shows, First Take, Get Up, Undisputed, etc. A lot of great points throughout the whole show, every show. I've been looking for a podcast like this for so long. Keep grinding. You guys are going to blow up. You guys gained a loyal supporter. We appreciate that, King Roy. You guys are really doing... You guys, you guys are killing it with the descriptions and the reviews because since... We started talking about people potentially doing it. We have gotten a few every other week. And anybody that takes the time to do it, we appreciate you guys a lot. But I am pretty embarrassed that we started to such a bad start with this technical <laughs> delay. If you guys were watching or were getting to ready to watch the live, you guys know what we're talking about. If you guys listen to the audio version of the podcast, you have no idea. But let's start off this episode by talking about Blake Griffin to the Brooklynettes. See, you know I love the Nets. I've been a Nets fan since I don't know how long, since I was young, a young, young boy. But you readopted the team a couple of weeks ago. Now, I've always been there, man. It's always <laughs> been in my heart. You can't readopt something that's always been in your heart. I was going to wear my Kyrie Irving jersey, the city jersey that's right there. But not going to lie, I gained a couple pounds. I don't like the way it fits on my body. I feel it fits kind of tight. I don't want to be taking it on and off. But you should have worn the beard. I should have worn the beard, but that I wear it when it, when we talk about James Harden, Blake Griffin to the Nets. Uh, 
at first, I know you didn't like the move. Uh, I like the move because I think right now the Nets have no playmaker off the bench, right? You know, Dinwiddie is still injured. Who knows if he's going to come back this season? There is no real point guard off the bench. I think Blake Griffin can play that point forward type role. If the Nets are getting a motivated Blake Griffin, which I think they are going to get, this was a steal of a move. I don't know if Blake will start because the a starting lineup of Kyrie, Harden, KD, Blake, and maybe Jeff Green or Joe Harris seems kind of weird. There's definitely room for it to happen. The Nets have a lot of versatility now. In terms of rim protection, this doesn't help the Nets. In terms of defense, this doesn't help the Nets. But the Nets right now are 22nd in bench points with 33.6 points per game. First place right now is Detroit. Then you have the Jazz, the Clippers, and Lakers are all top 10. The bench for the Nets is 14th in net rating. They have a zero net rating. So they're not minus and not plus in that category. And they're 17th in assists. I think by bringing Blake off the bench, that assist number will go up. And the Nets could potentially go from the, the 22nd team in bench points to the first. Right now, they're scoring 33 points off the bench. Number one is Detroit with 42. Can Blake Griffin get you <laughs> nine points? Yes, he can. They can go from 22nd to first with Blake coming off the bench, but who knows if he's going to come off the bench. That has not been announced yet. I I, I hope he does. Yeah. But for rim protection, I, I think the Nets are fine. Nick Claxton has been averaging about one and a half he's blocks per game. I don't think the Nets need to get an Andre Drummond or whoever else. I think it Nick Claxton. Nice, but yes, Nick I, Claxton coming back has made mm-hmm. it not a necessity like it was. I think Claxton is good. I, I think he'll he can be, play that role very nicely. I don't see any reason why to go out and get Another guy, I think Claxton is good. I worry about Claxton when he has to go up against Joel Embiid because he's skinny in frame, and I think JaVale McGee would be better to you know probably yeah. help guard him. But outside of that, I think this Nets team is pretty much complete, and this is the team we're going to see for the rest of, rest of the season. Yeah, and I would say I seemed very against the move at the beginning, but I wasn't as much against the move as much as I was against the role that I think a lot of people thought that he was going to play or still think he's going to play. And when you talk about him starting, I don't think there's any chance he should be starting. If you're bringing him in as a bench role, I think it's a great move. You're not going to find probably anybody in the league. I I would say you won't find many guys in the league better for the value of a, I believe he got the veteran minimum, right? Yeah. So you're not going to find many better players on the vet minimum than Blake Griffin, especially if you could get him half rejuvenated you look back in 2018, he was an all-star and very well-deserving. Since then, he's a totally different player. He hasn't dunked since 2019. Granted, late in 2019, and that number is skewed because of the way the season was affected in 2020, but still, he's not the same explosive guy. He's not a great three-point shooter as much as he's improved that shot, shooting 31% from three on six attempts. So, you know, he's a viable option shooting from the three-point line, but not a guy you want taking shots away from that big three or Joe Harris or even a guy like Bruce Brown, the way he's been playing. So, or Jeff Green. Yeah, or Jeff Green when he gets back from injury. Um, I, if you're telling me he's a bench player, I think it's a great move. But when people start talking about him being like a, either a starter or in the lineup at the end of games, I don't think that makes any sense. In my opinion, he, he doesn't provide anything to that starting unit. Like you said, he's a great addition to the bench. He could probably get you a solid 10 points a night with that second unit, and he will definitely make that second unit better if you can get half of what 2018 Blake was. And I think 
You've seen a little bit of a rejuvenation with DeAndre Jordan. I think you could get that same kind of thing out of Blake Griffin here, coming to a championship contender and just getting him to buy in a little bit more, which is, like I said, like what they've been able to do with DeAndre Jordan. But at the end of games, you want the three guys out there, and then I would rather see Joe Harris, Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, Nick Claxton all ahead of Blake Griffin in those situations because defensively, like you said, he's not a good defender anymore. He's not a good rebounder. So he doesn't add much in the categories that you've been lacking, and offensively you have better options. Percy, for me, uh, I think you're being a little bit too harsh on Blake. You know, I get it. I get it because he hasn't shown much. I'm okay with him finishing out games. I really am. If he's playing well that game, I, I have no problem with letting him continue to be out there and play. I'm not just going to sub him out because he's not playing. Because he's if he's playing well, I'm not going to do that. My prediction is that Blake Griffin will dunk in his first game with the Brooklyn Nets. That's my prediction. He will be in a pick-and-roll situation with James Harden. And he will get a lob, an easy lob dunk, and Blake, Blake Griffin will dunk. Do I think that he he definitely doesn't have the athleticism that he once had? He's never going to get that back. He's been injured way too much. He's been he's had a ton of knee injuries, but we see a trend of players that are older that we know they aren't once they aren't what they once were, but every so often they can give you a glimpse of what they once were. And I think that'll be Blake. Maybe every other four or five games, he's going to get that 20 a night, especially with Brooklyn. He's going to really show out, and you're going to see, wow, it feels like I'm watching Los Angeles Clippers' Blake Griffin. We're going to get a glimpse of that. I think right now, I wouldn't want to see Blake Griffin in spot-up shooter situations or play that role. He played it in Detroit this past season, and I mean, he was horrible in Detroit. I mean, he's tough to watch. I made a video about him his career being over how his career as we once knew it is over that's for sure he's not going to be he's not Blake Griffin anymore that's why when uh, Bleacher Report and ESPN and all these other outlets put out graphics of Harden KD and Kyrie yes Blake does not belong with those players he still has that name his cachet has that name but he is not that player they the Nets are just getting a good bench role player that's it I don't think they're getting anything else. I don't think they're getting 20 points per game. I think best case scenario, they're getting an efficient 12 to 15 a night from Blake Griffin. And I think that's being generous, especially given how many players the Nets have on their team. I think that's being generous, but I think he can give you four to six assists a night, which is huge. Yeah, and the worst case scenario is he doesn't pan out. He's just as bad as he was in Detroit. And all you signed them for was the vet men. So, I mean, like, it, it's not like you, you made some huge investment here. If it really doesn't work out, you can just sit them on the end of the bench and it'll make no difference. Or you could release them. It really does not, like, it, it was a very low-risk, medium-ish reward move, I would say. So, I can't be mad at it. My response yesterday was more so in response to people who were saying it was like adding a fourth star or this is the move that puts them over the top. I don't think it's that at all. If you didn't think the Nets were the championship favorites already, I don't think there's any way Blake Griffin signing should be the move that makes you say, oh, well, cancel the season, the league's over. Like, they were already championship favorites in my eyes, so obviously they're still championship favorites now. But 
people that didn't think they were, I don't see how Blake Griffin changes that for you. I made a video about it. I made a segment about it on this podcast. The segment title was literally called the Nets will win the 2021 NBA championship. This was before they got Blake Griffin. I've said it before Harden got traded to Brooklyn. If Harden gets traded to Brooklyn, they're going to win the championship. There are still some people that are in denial about it. There are still some people that think the Lakers are going to win or anybody else. Nobody is beating the Brooklyn Nets. I'll say that once. I've said that a million times already. I'll say it again. Nobody is beating the Brooklyn Nets in a seven-game series. In the East, it's not even close. The only teams that have a shot are the Lakers, if we're being realistic, and that's because they have LeBron, and we're giving them the benefit of the doubt. But realistically, no team is beating the Brooklyn Nets in a seven-game series. And I think Blake Griffin is going to surprise some people with how he plays when he joins the Nets and when they play their next game. Because I, I think there was a little bit of a factor that uh he wasn't motivated in Detroit. He didn't really want to give it his all on a team that is really bad. With the Nets, he has some motivation. This is a chance for him to win a championship. So I think everything is there for him to play his best basketball. And I think that's what he'll do. Yeah, and the Nets are really not only starting to turn a corner, they've turned the corner. Defensively, everybody is playing better. The energy level is higher, even against bad teams, which is something they struggled with early in the season. And then when they got Harden meshing together, they struggled beating bad teams. Now they're really starting to put it together, even without Kevin Durant, which is crazy to think you're adding probably a top three player in the league. Uh, He'll be back probably soon after the All-Star break. So they are going to be a very tough team to beat. No doubt about it. That's without Blake Griffin. I mean, adding him is just like, you know, like I said, very low risk. Adding a cherry on a Sunday. Exactly. That's what it is. Exactly. That's what it is. We're going to go into our next topic. We're going to talk about Mike Conley because I think he deserves his recognition, right? So when the all-star voting came out, Anthony Davis was over Devin Booker. Everybody said Devin Booker got snubbed. We also placed Mike Conley there because he is on a number one team in the NBA right now in the Utah Jazz. But then Devin Booker sat out the all-star game, and he was replaced by Mike Conley, and you still had people saying DeRozan got snubbed and other players, Shea, Gilgis Alexander. But I think... Mike Conley finally becoming an all-star was well-deserved because there have been about three to four times where he probably deserved to be an all-star. And it would have been a shame if he would, if he were to finish his career without an all-star appearance. Yeah. hundred percent. His whole career in Memphis, he was on those great teams where one, he was kind of overshadowed because it was a great unit. Like, they didn't have one superstar, I would say. It was a great unit of players. And so he never really got that recognition, along with the fact that the Western Conference guards were really good his whole career. So he, he kind of got screwed over in the Western Conference his whole career. And now it's not like it was given to him. It's not like it was a handout. You know, as much as it might have factored into the decision to give him the spot, he really earned it this year. He's playing great after a down year last year. He's really bounced back and helped lead one of the best, the best team in basketball, not one of the best teams in basketball. And he has been such a key part of it. There is nobody more deserving, you know, that was left off the original roster, I think, than Mike Conley. I think the reason why he should have gotten even originally was because you look at past teams that have been really great, that have had great records. One that comes to mind is the Atlanta Hawks, their 61 team. They had four All-Stars, Jeff Teague, Millsap, Al Horford, and Kyle Korver. 
And for a team to be as great as the Jazz have been so far, for them to only have Rudy and Mitchell is kind of downplaying Mike Conley's impact. Then we look at Golden State. I mean, Curry, Clay, Draymond. Yes, we know Draymond is an elite player, and all of them deserve to be be an all-star. But when you look at Draymond's stats, they never jumped out at you, but we put him in the all-star game because we knew he deserved that. When you look at Mike Conley right now, he's averaging 16 points per game, about six assists, shooting 44% from the field and 42% from three. And when you talk about advanced stats, he's the leader in a lot of Utah Jazz advanced analytics. He's second in win shares on the Jazz versus Rudy Gobert. He's first in offensive box plus minus. He's tied first in box plus minus with Joe Ingles. And the Utah Jazz are plus 14 when Mike Conley is on the court, which is most on the team by about a point. So in almost every single advanced analytic, it shows that Mike Conley has been the most impactful player on the Utah Jazz this season. Yeah, and... You know, he's not one of those flashy names. He never has been one of those flashy names, but he's always been so impactful to winning. And, you know, you've seen it this year. He has taken one of the biggest leaps on that team from last season, and look at how much they've improved. Obviously, there's been other reasons for that. But I think Mike Conley having this resurgence of his career at this stage is one of the biggest reasons. And if you take him off this team, I definitely don't think they're having the same success. Yeah, I agree. And I know we've been talking about the Utah Jazz a lot going back and forth about whether they're contenders or pretenders. I checked the schedules and the the strength of schedules. Utah Jazz have the easiest schedule going forward in the NBA. That's crazy. Which means that they based, which means the toughest part of the schedule, which was what just happened, they pretty much dominated everybody and I mean their net rating is off the charts and now they're getting into their easiest part the easiest part of their schedule this team can finish with 50 wins like I think so and that in I, a shortened season yes too. in a short season if this was a regular season with 82 games they could have probably finished with 60 plus wins this season and the West will go through Utah more than likely which you know is widely considered to be one of the toughest places to play in basketball so yeah it is you know it is. it's gonna be uh Going to be interesting. Like I was saying in that pretenders versus contenders, if there was ever a year for a team like the Jazz to have success without a big-time superstar, I think this is the year at least to come out of the West because if they face a team like the Nets, I don't know how well they would be able to handle a team with that much star power. But a team like the Lakers who have been dealing with injuries, the Clippers who are still trying to figure out their footing and prove themselves, you know, they really have a shot this year to come out of the West and I, they're not to be taken lightly. I made that mistake already this year. They're not to be taken lightly. <laughs> I think the West this year is wide open only because Anthony Davis is injured. Agreed. If he wasn't injured, I think the Lakers would take it. But because AD is injured, I think the West is wide open and any team could take it. You got Utah. You got the Lakers. You got the Clippers. Denver, we can't sleep on them because we know what they've done in the playoffs in the previous years. And the Phoenix Suns are also an up-and-coming young team. Chris Paul... He's going to play great in the playoffs. Devin Booker, yet to be seen. DeAndre Ayn, yet to be seen. We'll see how those young guys play, but we know Chris Paul is going to show up no matter what. They almost beat Houston last year in a seven-game series. Shea didn't have his best series. Neither did Danilo. It was mostly Chris Paul really putting OKC on on his back, and they almost beat the Rockets. Yeah, and, and to think, like, the next three teams would be, like, 
the Mavericks, the Trailblazers, the Warriors, who are all also really great teams. I think the Western Conference playoffs are going to be really fun to watch. Like, I don't think there's going to be a bad matchup in the first round. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think every game, every series in the Western Conference is going to be a really tough series. Every single series. All, all of those seeds, four through eight, you know, usually there, or I should say five through eight, there's usually one you look at or one or two teams that you look at and you're like, we really got to avoid those guys. All of those teams, five through eight. And then even when you get into like nine through 11, you look at them and you're like, that's a tough matchup. Yeah, because Portland, even though they are not the highest seed right now, if you face them in the playoffs, they're going to have CJ and Nurkic back. So they are going to be a fully healthy team in the playoffs, which nobody wants to face a fully healthy Blazers team in the playoffs. So the West is definitely something to watch out for. Now shifting gears, we talked about the top teams in the West. Now we're about to talk about one of the bottom teams in Western Conference, and that is the Houston Rockets. The Houston Rockets are on a 13-game losing streak, which is horrible. I mean, when James Harden first got traded, the Rockets went on a on a five-game winning streak, I believe. Their defense was one of the best in the NBA. Christian Wood gets hurt. He goes down. And that kind of ruins a lot of the momentum for them. He's still been out. I think if it wasn't for Christian Wood getting injured, he would have been an all-star this season. So him getting hurt has a lot to do with why the Rockets are so bad right now. But a a bright spot in what's been a pretty miserable season for Houston Rockets fans, especially after losing James Harden, is that they traded for Kevin Porter Jr. And he has a ton of potential. I mean, he should have been a top 10 pick, but because of character issues and a lot of that other stuff, he dropped down to the low 20s, got picked up by Cleveland. It ended bad there. He got shipped off to Houston. Then Houston put him on the Vipers, their G League affiliate, and he's been averaging, he averaged 24, 6, and 7 in the G League, shot 45% and 32% from three. They have just called up Kevin Porter Jr., so he will be on the active roster. What do you expect from Kevin Porter Jr.? Do you think he'll make an immediate impact? Yeah, I think he should come in and immediately be playing well. I don't think his play was ever a question. You mentioned the only thing that made him not a top 10 pick was the character issues, and it's followed him right to the NBA. It's the reason he didn't start out playing this year, the reason he got his locker taken by Torian Prince, and then the reason why he got shipped out of Cleveland because he acted immature when they gave his locker away, which, again, was just his fault. So he can't get out of his own way. And if he can, he has all the talent in the league to be a star. You've seen it in the G League. I get it. It's not NBA level competition, but it's guys who play in an NBA level. You know, it's no joke. It's no slouch league. So the fact that he's been putting up those numbers in the G League, he should at least be able to come in and give you something like 14 points a night on some pretty good shooting. And he was playing well in Cleveland when he had the opportunity to over the past two seasons, I believe. So you know, the talent is 100% there, but it's just about getting him in check. I think they have a couple good leaders in that locker room in Houston that could try and get him on the right path, but that's the most important thing because he's got all the talent in the world. It's just about getting him on the straight and narrow. KPJ had some big games in Cleveland. He actually had one against the Rockets when he was in Cleveland. I think he should be playing a lot of minutes as soon as they, you know, as soon as they activate him. As soon as we come back from this all-star break, Houston's first game, Kevin Porter Jr. should be playing 20-plus minutes a night. When you look at this Houston Rockets roster, I kind of feel bad at the direction that they're heading in. 
because you look at their old players, John Wall, Oladipo, P.J. Tucker, Daniel House is like a tweener. He's only 27, but he's still only he's still a part of the old Rockets regime. He's not a part of this new Rockets roster. Then you look at Eric Gordon as well, and young players. Christian Wood is a guy to be really excited about. Jay Sean Tate, I like him. You know, he's a good role player, but are we going to call him a young player with this young core? He's 25 years old. You know, I think he. what you see from Jay Sean Tate is what you're going to get, which is a good player, but it's not nothing to rave about when you talk about your young core. Then you look at Mason Jones, an undrafted player, who I think is an okay scorer, but is he something to really rave about when you talk about the young core of a team? I don't really think so. So the only two guys they have on their young core is Christian Wood and Kevin Porter Jr. that you really have to be excited about going forward, to be honest. And they can trade Oladipo for a young player, I believe, or a pick. I think they'll trade P.J. Tucker for a pick. And sadly, they're going to have to stick with John Wall. I know John Wall has been playing pretty good for the Rockets, but considering the direction the Rockets want to go in, John Wall doesn't really fit their timetable but you can't trade him because his contract is crazy. And Daniel House and Eric Gordon, I think they can stay. I don't mind them. But Houston has to really hope that one of the picks that they acquired lands into one of the top 10 to top five picks in this upcoming draft because I believe they actually have a chance to land a top pick in this draft. It's not just next year's draft. It's actually this, it's this draft. If they can do that, we never know what can happen. Like imagine going from James Harden to now looking out to a Cade Cunningham or um, Jonathan Kamingo or Spe- Evan Mobley. Especially the way lottery is now. Look at the year the Pelicans got Zion. I mean, I don't, I don't remember exactly where they were in the lottery, but they jumped up quite a few spots, I believe, to get to, to number one. Um, and, and there's a couple other examples over the past few years. So right now, according to Tankathon, the Houston Rockets are projected to get the third overall pick in the draft. And it's their pick. Oh, they have their pick yes. this year. So they are projected to get the number three overall pick in this draft. So moving forward, they could have a young core of Christian Wood or uh, Kevin Porter Jr. and whoever else. But back to the question about Kevin Porter Jr. I think he's he's going to be pretty good for the Rockets. I know that a lot of Rockets fans and a lot of NBA fans in general have been comparing him to a young James Harden. I don't see that. Everybody has to calm down. I know he's a lefty, so... It's I really, can see where they get it. Yes, from. it's really easy to make that comparison, but Kevin Porter Jr. I think can be a great player, but we tend to forget that James Harden is special. He is all-time great, special, a rarity in the NBA. I don't think that's going to be Kevin Porter Jr., but I think he can be a really good young player for the Rockets, and hopefully he can keep his attitude in check because if he does that, then he can really blossom in the floors because that's what's really holding him back. Yeah, and that Pelicans draft lottery, by the way, they had the seventh best odds. So it just goes to show you how wacky the draft lottery can be. But you mentioned, uh, you know, the Rockets are kind of at a crossroads right now. They don't have anything to lose. I mean, they're one of the worst teams in the league. They're not going anywhere. So what does it hurt to put one of your two young guys out there with any potential for, like you said, 20 minutes a night. I think it would be very beneficial to see what you have. And maybe if he gets playing more and plays a bigger role, he will be more willing to buy in and commit to the basketball court rather than whatever he has going on off of it. But I think him and Christian Wood are two good building blocks, but you need to have some more pieces around them. And right now they don't. 
they need to figure out something to do with Victor Oladipo because he's not coming back. So you got to figure out a way to to get something in return for him, and then from there, I, I it's going to be a tough road ahead. But PJ Tucker's another move they can make, and they're going to have to hit on that pick this year because if we're being honest, stock the cupboard. If we're being honest, if Houston hits on this pick and they have a fourteen percent chance of getting a getting the number one pick, Christian Wood develops, Kevin Porter Jr. develops. They trade away a lot of their guys for draft picks. They draft well. This can be a really good team. This can be yeah. this rebuild can be quicker than usual. This was the best year to trade James Harden because this is the most loaded draft class that we've had in a while. A lot of people are excited about this. I know we just had one in 2018. Yeah. A really loaded one. But this is another really loaded draft class. It's deep. And who knows that the Rockets rebuild correctly. They have a great team. Harden could come back. Later on in the future, I know a lot of Rockets fans are holding out hope for that. He could come back and win a chip with Houston, kind of like <laughs> LeBron did with the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't know. Go about he all go that. go he. LeBron went to Miami. He won a chip. Then he went back to Cleveland and won a chip for the city. James Harden goes to Brooklyn and wins a chip. He's gonna win two chips. Then he goes back to Houston and he wins a chip there for a city and retires a Houston Rockets champion and a Brooklyn Nets <laughs> champion. I'm telling you, Harden is gonna do that. It's going to happen. Yeah. 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 And where do you think uh, Kevin Porter Jr. plays a role in that? Shooting guard. What Kyrie's playing now. <laughs> Harden's always been a point guard. Harden's always been a point guard. <laughs> no, He's always been a point guard. I, I do think Kevin Porter Jr. should play a big role on this year's team because they don't have, there, there's no incentive for them other than to see what they have in their young guys. And there's only two guys really worth looking at right now. And that's Christian Wood and Kevin Porter Jr. So give him his minutes. See yeah, I agree. I agree. I just hope that they don't prematurely fire Steven Silas yeah. because I think this roster that he's been given is is not a good roster at all. This is this is coming off the coattails of the small ball roster, which was unsuccessful. So because of that, I hope they do give Steven Silas a little bit more time to see if he truly is a good or bad coach because I think you can't make that decision off of this roster at all. Now, talking about teams we just, we talked about a good one in uh the Utah Jazz with Mike Conley then we talked about the Houston Rockets a bad team now we're going to talk about teams that may surprise us in the second half of the NBA season the all-star break just happened I think we're returning back to basketball on Thursday that's the first game that's yeah. going to be scheduled and what teams are going to surprise you or do you think will surprise you in the second half of the season in this segment I don't want to hear Teams that are number one seed already. So I don't want to hear, you know, Philadelphia, Utah, Clippers, Lakers, under those. I want to hear some sleeper teams. What are some sleeper teams that you have? So the first one I went with was the Miami Heat, which is kind of like not as much of a sleeper as I think you would have liked to hear. But just because what they went through in the first half of the season, I think a lot of people are down on them right now. But they were dealing with injuries the entire first half. They didn't really get into a rhythm at any point. And when they did start to get into a semi-rhythm, you saw them start to turn things around a little bit. And now they're already back up to six when they were like at 13th in the conference a couple of weeks ago, I think. So now that they're starting to get healthy, if they can get into a rhythm, I don't think they'll be as good as they were last year, but I definitely think they will become a playoff lock. I think they could become a top four seed eventually by the end of the season if they remain healthy. So I think that's a team that could turn it around in the second half. Another team that, is pretty high in the seating, but I think will surprise some people in the second half is the Charlotte Hornets. I love LaMelo Ball in the starting lineup. 
I think they're starting to put a couple things together. And I, I think that that addition of LaMelo to the starting lineup is improving the play of everybody on that roster. Although they're young, I like them in the second half, and I think that they're going to be a, another team that's going to be a playoff lock. While researching for this segment, I had a look at strength of schedule, and that had to be a factor. These are the five top. These are the five teams with the easiest strength of schedule moving forward. The Utah Jazz are one. The Dallas Mavericks are two. The Brooklyn Nets are three. The Miami Heat are four, and the Denver Nuggets are five. For my sleeper team, I have two in particular that are on this list. The Dallas Mavericks are one. They're eighteen and sixteen. They are eight seed right now. But to start the season, they were crippled by COVID and injuries. They are just starting to get healthy. Porzingis missed 13 games. Maxi Kleba missed 11. Josh Richardson and Finney Smith missed eight games. And now they're finally healthy. Just before the All-Star break when they faced Orlando, they had an all they had a starting lineup of Luca, Josh Richardson, Dorian Finney Smith, Maxi Kleba, and Christos Porzingis. So they're all healthy. And Tim Hardaway Jr. coming off the bench is really huge for them. I think he Fits that role perfectly. He's kind of he's gonna do kind of what Terrence Ross does in Orlando, play that bench role and just come off the bench and score. And Jalen Bronson is a starting point guard in the league, and he plays really great for the Mavericks night in and night out. And we can't forget about Trey Burke and the spark that he brings. Dwight Powell is also out there, and so I think the Dallas Mavericks are going to have a great second half to the NBA season. They're eight seed right now. The Warriors are outside looking in. They're the ninth seed. It's really hard to say that the Warriors are going to make the playoffs if the Mavericks are healthy and they're starting to find a groove. Um, unless San Antonio yeah, drops out. Unless San Antonio drops out. But this, the Golden State Warriors may miss the playoffs if the Mavericks start to catch fire, and I think they will catch fire. Then you look at the Denver Nuggets. They're 21-15. and 15. They're the sixth seed, but Gary Harris has missed 17 games. P.J. Dozier has missed 15. Jamichael Green has missed 11. Millsap and Porter Jr. have missed 10 each. And right now they have three key injuries still. Jamichael Green has a shoulder injury. Paul Millsap is dealing with a knee injury. And Gary Harris is still dealing with a thigh. There is no real legit timetable for, for their return. I'm not sure when they're going to come back. But when they're healthy, when the Nuggets are healthy... You got a lineup of Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Michael Porter Jr., or Will Barton, whoever you want to slide in there, Paul Millsap, Nikola Jokic, then off the bench, Monte Morris, Will Barton, Jamichael Green, P.J. Dozier, and Compazzo, and Hartenstein is pretty, playing pretty well. This team is legit, and everybody is sleeping on them because they haven't been healthy all year. The record doesn't really show how good the Denver Nuggets are, and we can't forget about Nikola Jokic. If the Denver Nuggets start to catch fire and they start to get a higher seed, they're only two and a half games behind the third seed. We might be seeing, we might be hearing more rumblings about a Nikola Jokic MVP because the Nuggets are starting to win. I just hope that Gary Harris returns. So does Michael. So does Paul Millsap and Michael Green. More so Gary Harris though, because I think he does a really great job on defense and he spaces the floor really well. I would like to see them back, but when they're healthy, they are a dangerous team. Now, let me ask you something, because this is something I was trying to look for when I was researching. If you had to choose one team right now that's out of the playoffs to make the playoffs, who would it be? 
Because I was struggling with this one. I think the playoff teams right now look pretty good. The Warriors would be my first pick in the West. And the East were the ones that are outside looking in. So it's the Bulls at nine, then the Pacers, the Hawks, the Wizards, the Cavs, the Magic. And the, the Pacers Pistons. would be my other pick. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It, the, the Knicks actually have one of the hardest schedules in the second half of the year. You think they're not going to make it? No, I, I, don't, I didn't say that. I just said they have the hardest schedule in the second half of the season. They have one of the hardest schedules. The East is so tight. I mean, from like even the Celtics at four all the way until the the Hawks really or the Wizards at 14 and 20, like there is not that big of a gap. It's, it's only like a five-game difference between all of those teams. So. And you mentioned the other team, the Miami Heat. Over the last 15 games, they have had the number one ranked defense in the NBA. So they're playing well, and unlike the Nuggets, the Miami Heat are healthy now. They're yeah. only missing Avery Bradley. Which he's he's a good piece. He's a luxury. But the Lakers like. won a championship without him last season. It wasn't like Avery Bradley was make or break for the Lakers. I don't think he's make or break for the Miami Heat. So the Miami Heat are finally healthy. Their core is healthy because of that. I think they'll make a really good run in the second half of the season. But I think at the end of the year, we're gonna talk about the Mavericks, the Nuggets of Miami, and talk about them and say, wow. You know, people were wrong about the Mavericks and the Heat especially because because of their slow starts, everybody kind of had them missing the playoffs. Same thing with the Raptors. The Raptors solidified their spot a little bit earlier, but people were still down on the Mavericks and the Heat. And now that they're really kicking it up, you're not really hearing that chatter anymore, especially now. everybody's When the season is over, everybody's going to look back at, at now and be like, why did we think they were going to miss the playoffs? And, and I, it's funny, it happens... Like, pretty much every year, there's one team that gets out of the gate slow. But it's happened to multiple teams this season, and I think that has a lot to do with the landscape of the NBA since a year ago and how different things have been. You don't understand how much of a rhythm these guys are in with their bodies. And when you start to change that rhythm, it it takes a toll on their bodies. So the fact that so many teams have been able to come back healthy is impressive, but it's no surprise to me at all that a couple of teams at least have gotten off to tough starts with injuries and stuff like that affecting them. Yeah, no doubt about it. Now, on to the next segment. This is a little bit of a fun segment. Uh, we're gonna. It's a little bit of a speculative segment. We're going to talk about NBA Top Shot. It's this new thing. It's a new trend that's been... Everybody's been talking about it. So, just to give you guys a rundown on what NBA Top Shot is. It's digital collectibles. It's like card collecting, but just digitally... And instead of collecting an image or a picture on a card, you collect highlights, GIFs, or clips of a player hitting a three, hitting a dunk, getting a steal, whatever it may be. And 40,000 people have joined NBA Top Shot. And I got to say, this is pretty crazy. I was on it today and I was looking at it. There are highlights of LeBron James hitting a regular three-pointer in the regular season that is that costs a thousand dollars things like that that are it, it's pretty crazy like lamello ball making a pass is like 500 and basically how these digital collectibles are valued is based on the serial number so when you talk about cards and you know there are some cards that are rare there are some cards that are not the rarity is is about how many there are available how many there are in circulation so NBA Top Shot puts serial numbers on these digital collectibles 
And if there's not a lot of these highlights or clips, then they're worth even more. And some highlights are the same and they're worth more because they are branded as, oh, like a gold edition of the highlight, kind of like Ultimate Team or you. I know a lot of people play like Madden Ultimate Team or my team in 2K, kind of like that. And for me, you know, I don't want to totally downplay this trend and what's happening, but it definitely feels like a trend to me. And that's about it because I get it that people are really hyped about it. You see a lot of NBA players buying this stuff, but at the same time, my first thought that came into my head is why would anybody buy highlight clips? Why would anybody buy gifts? I, it just, it for, to me, it just doesn't make sense. And it, to be fair, I've never been an avid car collector. I have some cars, but I'm not over here looking for the most uh, investment-worthy car ever. I, it's just whatever to me. I've never been a, a guy that's like, oh, cars are you know really valuable to me. So maybe that's why I don't get this uh, digital collectible thing. But to me, it, it just re- it feels really phony. That's that's the word to describe it. I, I I totally get what you're saying, and I remember when I first heard about it, I was confused for months on what it actually was. I didn't really learn what it was until I was telling you before Kenny KOT4Q on YouTube, great a great YouTube account, put up a video opening NBA Top Shot packs, and then it started to make a little bit more sense. And I was just as confused, like why would somebody pay for that? But I'll play devil's advocate, and I'll say I would imagine. Again, this is long before our time, so I can't speak from experience. But I would imagine that trading cards probably started out the same way. People were probably like, oh, why would you pay for just a picture of a guy on a piece of paper? And and look what they've grown to be. I think there's two things that play into it. And the first one I'll say is people want to be a part of things. Like you said, I think it was 40,000 people have already joined up and started buying and selling Top Shot cards, NBA players. Uh, influencers, I guess you would say, from YouTube and stuff like that, big-time basketball names in the community. Um, And people want to be a part of that. People think it's cool to be doing something that somebody that they follow does as well. So I think that could be a big part uh, of its growing popularity. And the second thing is something that has become wildly commoditized, starting with video games, and it's the thrill of opening things and trying to get a reward back. It happens with trading cards. You know, you buy a a pack of cards hoping to get that rare card. You play a video game, you play Ultimate Team, you'll spend $20 buying packs trying to get that elite player. And it's, it's just the rush. Like, it's not even as much getting the item. It's the rush of getting something rare. And I think that is what NBA Top Shot is trying to hit on with the serial numbers. You know, anybody could go on YouTube and look up highlights, but you own that one of a hundred LeBron James three pointer, but I don't think it's even owning it because how can you own a highlight clip? You know, because just because you opened up a LeBron dunking on a guy, like let's just let's talk about the Yusuf Nurkic dunk when LeBron dunked on Yusuf Nurkic, one of the biggest yes. selling ones on the platform. Let's say you own that card. It's not like ESPN can't show it. It's not like I can't make a video right now on YouTube and add that highlight into my YouTube video, I can still do that. So it's not like you own the, the the video or the clip. But the reason why I don't think that argument makes sense when people use it is that when you get a trading card, it's not like you own that picture. You don't own that picture on the trading card. You can easily 
counterfeit the trading card, but yeah. obviously it's not going to be the same. Th- that's why for me, it's like people dictate value. So whatever people dictate that um, deem to be valuable is that's, what's going to sell. So it doesn't matter if you think a trading card is just a picture on a piece of paper or these highlights are just digital clips. If somebody is willing to pay for it, there's going to be a market for it. Just like I said, the highlights can be replicated. So can pictures on these sports cards. They can be replicated as well. This whole thing in Rise of NBA Top Shot is just kind of really weird to me right now. I'm going to be honest. Is it something that I'm going to be investing in? Hell no. <laughs> not even a chance. I will not drop a dollar in 10 NBA Top Shot. Will I regret it in the future? Probably not. If if I'm telling you now, if it does, if it if NBA Top Shot does become a phenomenon and the investments are deemed worth it, even if they are deemed worth it, I wouldn't really feel like I missed out. Just like how trading cards, you can flip trading cards right now. Just because I'm not flipping trading cards doesn't mean I feel left out. I really don't care. You know, so I don't I don't care that I'm not making money off of trading cards. So because of that, I don't think if NBA Top Shot, if it does blow up, I really it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't affect me in any way. I because yeah. at this point I just don't think it's it's a smart investment to make. I'm not paying hundreds of dollars for a clip. It's just yeah. not me. I don't I don't see myself investing in an NBA Top Shot pack. I don't even know how to like word it. I don't know how they I don't I don't see myself buying any NBA Top Shots, but I do think it's something very interesting and something to keep an eye on because this can be the future of trading cards or the demise of trading cards and the future of collectibles and yeah, sports. And that's that's another thing is I think it will be this will be the decline of trading cards simply because this generation and I was listening to a Mark Cuban interview and he he said this perfectly. This generation does not have a fascination with the physical item of a card. We don't have that fascination. We are a digital generation. Us, we were kind of, we grew up in it. We were growing up into it. But now these younger kids are growing up in it. Like they are already three years old with an iPad in their hand. That's all they know. When you play video games like 2K, like Madden, like FIFA, you use real money to buy packs to better your team, right? And instead of them having a pack of physical cards, they just have all the stuff digitally, and it's easy. You know, when you talk about trading cards, to flip trading cards, you have to go and ship them out to get graded. It gets shipped back to you. Then you got to ship them out to the, to the buyer, all of this other stuff. On this marketplace, you can buy and sell like that. There's really no hassle to it. And that's really convenient. And we are a lazy generation when it comes to doing stuff like that because we, because I wouldn't even say really lazy, but just using our time more effectively because we are not, if if we don't have to do something, we don't have to spend an hour on something when we don't have to, then we're not going to, we're just, we value our time more. And I think NBA top shot has made it so people can buy and sell easy without any hassle and I think that's the upside in it. I think there is a big chance that this does replace trading cards as a whole because a younger generation is going to be getting into it. And when you see NBA players promoting it like they are, Tyrese Halliburton talking about how many stuff he has already, how many packs he's bought, and you look at 
KOT, KOT4K, making videos about it. The more popular, the more popular people that make videos about this stuff, about NBA Top Shot, and the more influencers that continue to push it, the bigger it's going to be. Yeah, and everything is moving digital now, and I think that this is just the movement of trading cards digitally. And you got to give credit to NBA Top Shot, the way they've been able to market their brand and get off to a head start. Now they have to take advantage of it, but you can't put yourself in a much better position than having the NBA players that you're making these moments out of representing your product and using your product on their platforms and having influencers using it and marketing it. So they're off to a great start, and I really do think as much as a couple months ago I was laughing at it, I really do think that this has a chance to be the next big thing. You knew about it a couple months ago? Yeah, I had heard about it, and I was like, what is this? At first, I thought it was like a physical box that you like opened and a highlight played, and I just, I I didn't even think twice about it. I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was just, like you said, a trend, and I thought it would fizzle out, and now it's just gotten bigger and bigger, and it's turned into something that, you know, you almost can't avoid now if you follow the NBA on Twitter. Like, it, it comes up a decent amount from the people that I follow. It's pretty crazy. We'll see where it does end up, but one thing is certain, I'm not going to be investing in it. <laughs> That's for certain. I can lose out. It doesn't matter. I, I'm, not, I'm not really too uh, invested, and <laughs> in I'm, not, I'm not hell-bent on doing it, and I'm not that worried. So next topic we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about football. So that's going to do it for the basketball portion of the podcast. It was a really short portion of basketball that we talked about. The All-Star Weekend happened. And because of that, there haven't been games, so there hasn't really been anything to talk about. But our next episode, we'll probably have way more to talk about. We'll probably have some fun segments when we talk about basketball. But now we're going to move on to football. And this is for this segment is for all our Chargers fans out there that watch our content because we haven't really talked about this at all yet. And I think this is an important topic to talk about. The Los Angeles Chargers hired... Joe Lombardi to be their new offensive coordinator. And of course, this is a big deal because they need to maximize Justin Herbert while he's on his rookie contract. And they really have no room to mess up a hire. And are you worried at all about Joe Lombardi being the Chargers new offensive coordinator? Or were you okay with the move? I I will say I am slightly worried. Um, He has not had success in other opportunities, though he's worked with some good quarterbacks. I'll give him credit. He's worked with Matt Stafford. He's worked with Drew Brees. So he's been around good quarterbacks. So I think that's a positive of him coming to this young quarterback and bring him a lot of knowledge. I know Coach Staley thinks very highly of him. They worked together in the past. And bringing him in into the offensive coordinator role is, you know, says a lot about how much he trusts Lombardi in that role. And one other positive I will say is... There's definitely going to be no question Justin Herbert is going to be slinging the rock. He is going to be throwing the football. That's been a staple of Joe Lombardi. Everywhere he's been, in Detroit especially, he threw the ball at ridiculous rates with Matthew Stafford. Granted, I mean, with Calvin Johnson, it's kind of hard not to throw the ball. But there's no question Justin Herbert's going to throw the ball. Maybe a little bit too much. My concern is that he hasn't had much success much success elsewhere, especially with a guy who I think was super talented in Matthew Stafford and Calvin Johnson. So it, it's a risky move, and I don't know if a risky move was the best thing to go go after with a guy like Justin Herbert, who you know I think it would have been smarter to bring in a more um, set infrastructure, if that makes sense. 
for me, I'm kind of split between the middle because I think Joe Lombardi, his resume speaks for itself, right? I mean, when you look at the New Orleans aspect of his resume, it jumps out at you. He's been a quarterback coach for the Saints for five years. He's worked with Drew Brees. Drew Brees speaks very highly of Joe Lombardi. Sean Payton does as well. And then when you get into the Detroit Lions aspect of his his coaching career, it, it kind of goes downhill. Two underwhelming years. He didn't even last two seasons. In 2014, Detroit had the second the 22nd ranked offense. And in 2015, they had the 18th ranked offense, but Joe Lombardi was fired after a one and six start after just seven games because the offense was not performing. Matthew Stafford had some of his lowest quarterback ratings of his career when he was paired up with Joe Lombardi. And I know the argument that a lot of people like to use for that is everybody does bad in Detroit. That may be true, but not everybody outside of Matthew Stafford does bad in Detroit because Matthew Stafford has been the most consistent player for the Lions for the past 10 seasons. We know he's with the Rams now. And when you look at Matthew Stafford's Lions career, the worst two seasons outside of his rookie year were the years that Joe Lombardi was the offense coordinator. So that does scare me. And they had good talent. They had Eric Ebron who did have a problem catching the ball. He dropped a lot of balls. Golden Tate was there. Calvin Johnson. I mean, they had a good receiving core. Jock Bell was their running back. I don't know what type of scheme they're going to bring to the Chargers yet. uh, Because in Detroit, it was mostly like a power run scheme. But with the Chargers, I think it's going to be more spread. I listened to Joe Lombardi's introductory interview press conference with the Chargers. And I I like the things that he said. He said that he's going to try to build an offense around Justin Herbert. Brandon Staley and Joe Lombardi have chemistry together because Joe Lombardi was Brandon Staley's OC in college. Brandon Staley was a former quarterback. So that's a plus, but it it just, this wasn't the move to sell me on Justin Herbert is going to be the MVP because I think the talent is there. Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Austin Eckler is going to be back. I think they fixed the offensive line. But the only thing that that's really holding, that's making me hold my tongue in regards to Justin Herbert having an MVP like year next season is Joe Lombardi. If it was any other accomplished coordinator in the NFL, I would have said Herbert is the guy. But because it is Joe Lombardi, I'm kind of taken aback a little bit, and I want to see how it goes. And when I want to see what happens to free agency because Trey Turner is probably getting cut or traded. So they have to fill a guard spot. They have to get a tackle outside of Bulaga. They have to get a left tackle. They have to get a center. They have to fill every position on that offensive line outside of Bulaga. So it's going to be tough. Yeah, and I think one of the worst moves of this offseason, although a young offseason for them, is losing Pep Hamilton. He was so instrumental to Justin Herbert's growth this past season, and he was the one guy that I really wanted to see them keep aboard on that coaching staff. And for Lombardi, I think... One of his Achilles heels was not not being willing to adjust. I think he tried to use the same offense in Detroit that he used in New Orleans, and it didn't work out as well with Matt Stafford as it did for Drew Brees. So if he goes to Los Angeles, is he going to try and just force the same system on Herbert, even if he's not working? Because I think 
he's kind of similar in skill set to a Matt Stafford type player rather than more of a Drew Brees. So if the if the system isn't working, is he going to be willing to work with Justin Herbert and figure out what works for him? Or is he going to be dead set on implementing his system, you know, who everybody else be damned? So that's a concern for me. In twenty in twenty three games under Joe Lombardi, Matthew Stafford averaged two hundred sixty six yards per game. He threw th- he threw thirty four touchdowns and twenty one interceptions and completed sixty one percent of his passes. In twenty three games after Lombardi was fired, Stafford averaged two hundred sixty six yards per game, so the same yardage per game. But he threw forty two touchdowns and only twelve interceptions. And he completed 67% of his passes. So he took care of the ball way better after Lombardi was gone. Is that just Stafford not being a good decision maker? Lombardi's play calling? We can't really tell. I haven't watched the film yet. I haven't went back and watched Detroit Lions 2014 season. So I really can't say and I can't give a definitive answer. But I think it is a concern. We'll see what happens though because I mean... In the press conference, Joe Lombardi did say Sean Payton says this all the time. Familiarity is better than ability. And Staley and Lombardi are very familiar with each other. They have a relationship already, which I think is a huge plus. You want your coaching staff to get along with each other. As Jets fans, we know when Adam (laughs) Gase was the coach, they forced Greg Williams on to him. Adam Gase couldn't pick his own coaching staff. And I think that had a lot to do with Adam Gase's failure as a head coach. But Brandon Staley gets to pick his own guys. So at this point, it's just trusting in him. The good thing about it is that I think even if we don't see a great season by the offense, I think that defense is going to be great because the Chargers have an identical personnel to what the Rams had when we talk about defense. Derwin James is the perfect safety for what Brandon Staley wants to do on defense. So I think as a whole, their defense is going to be one of the top defenses in the league. It's really if that offense can take that next step. Yeah, and I think defense was the way to go for a head coach. I would have liked to bring that I would have liked for them to have brought in a more sure thing as the offensive coordinator, but I think shoring up that defense is going to make Justin Herbert look much better because as great as he looked last season, the reason the wins weren't coming is because the defense couldn't get a stop. So I think that defense improving is going to make Herbert look a lot better this season. Yep. Next topic we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some 2021 NFL quarterbacks, but we're going to be reacting to a list that a former quarterback made. His name is Chris Sims. This, this list caught traction on social media. A lot of people called Chris Sims an idiot. They said he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then that was followed up with a lot of people posting and talking about Chris Sims' former um, resume when ranking quarterbacks. So before we give you this quarterback ranking, I'm just going to talk about Chris Sims' resume. So last season, I believe, who was a rookie this past season? Herbert and Burrow? Yeah, Yeah, he had Burrow 1 and Herbert 2, and he didn't have Tua. I think he had Tua around like 5 or 6. Yes, he had Tua even below Jordan Love. In 2019... He had Kyler Murray one. I, he missed on Daniel Jones. That was his biggest yes. miss. And I don't even think that's a miss because Daniel Jones is like, okay, he's like a whatever quarterback. In 2018, he had Josh Allen one, Lamar two, 
three Baker, uh, Baker and Darnold, Darnold and Rosen. Rosen. So he was spot on with that draft. He was high on Mahomes before the draft as well. So he has a track. He has a track record of being right on these quarterbacks. And he just released his list. So number one, he has Zach Wilson. Number two, it's Trevor Lawrence. Number three, it's Mac Jones. Number four, it's Kellen Mond. Number five, it's Justin Fields. And number six, it's Trey Lance. Now I just want to I just want to ask you this question first, Jack. You were very down on Mac Jones. And for Chris Sims to have him rank three, I mean, how do you feel about that? I was surprised. I was really surprised with the list in general. I mean, I'll say one of the guys that I've been mentioning, I feel like, in a bunch of different previews is Kellen Mond. And even as much as I think he would be a good value for where you could get him at, I think having him at four ahead of Fields and Lance is crazy talk. And that's from, you know, I've been pretty high on Kellen Mond. So we wouldn't be talking about this if he didn't have the resume of success ranking quarterbacks in the past. So, I mean, you have to take it with at least, you know, some substance here because he's done a great job in the past. I'll tell you with some substance, but I'll say this. He's wrong about Kellen Mond. I'm, I am 100% certain. Of, if Kellen Mond, like, I think he can develop into a starter. No doubt about it. But I think Justin Fields and Trey Lance have way Star, more potential. Yeah, yeah like, franchise quarterback yeah. potential. I don't see what he's using Kellen Mond. And to be fair, last year, no, in 2019 in the draft, he ranked Ryan Finley above Daniel Jones. So I think this is the Ryan Finley of this quarterback list. Kellen Mond being at four because I watched him at A&M and I never thought anything of it. You know, I, I thought he was an okay college quarterback. He kind of reminds me of Phillip Rivers in his release, his his posture, his throwing motion. He looks uncomfortable. He re, he reminds me of Phillip Rivers. It's an, it's an awkward release. Not saying it can't be successful because Phillip Rivers was is a Hall of Fame quarterback in my opinion. So it can be, but I'm not high on Kellen Mond. I would say on Mac Jones, even though I've sounded very critical of him, I think he can definitely become a starting quarterback in the league. I think he can be a good quarterback. I just don't see him ever becoming a star or a franchise quarterback. So to me, seeing him at three was crazy. But I thought that, again, I'm very high on Zach Wilson, but him above Lawrence was another eye-opener for me. Like, I I love Zach Wilson, but I don't know if he'll ever be Trevor Lawrence. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I would have... I just started evaluating these quarterbacks. I started with Zach Wilson. I finished watching every game of his. When I tell you Zach Wilson was near flawless, he was near flawless. Like Watching Zach Wilson, I fell in love with the football player. I fell in love with a human being. The way he throws that football is something special. I mean, he has a very quick release. He can throw off platform. He, he fits the ball into really tight windows. It's something really special about him. He has great ball placement, great anticipation. He can move and get yardage with his legs. He goes through reads well. He studies the game. Like, there are a lot of things that I like about Zach Wilson a lot. And I don't think it's crazy to say that he can have a better career than Trevor Lawrence. I think as a prospect, because you do have to take into account the body of work. Lawrence has been doing this for a couple of years now. So because of that, I would, you know, just off of my gut feeling, I would put Lawrence number one, but Zach Wilson, I'm telling you, he is special. And I told you, I told you this through text message. I told you 
I if I were the Jets, I wouldn't trade for Watson. I'm hell-bent on getting Wilson at number two and building around him, and that's it. I think Wilson can be a top 10, top 5 quarterback in the NFL, and because of that, I think he'll be good. The only thing I'm concerned about Wilson is when I was looking at his film, something that he tends to do is that he tends to lower his, lower his shoulder when he goes out and he runs, and I'm worried about that because he's already had a shoulder injury, he's had a broken wrist, he, he has durability concerns, and a quarterback who goes out and runs and doesn't slide much, it worries me because if you take that one big hit in the NFL, you can you can get hurt and you can be out for a couple of games. And we know with the Jets the past couple of years, Sam Darnold getting injured has pretty much put a put a nail in our season most of the, for the past couple of years. His rookie year, he got injured for a couple of games. Then his second year, when we, were, when we were so hyped with our free agency signings, Darnold got mono. So is Zach Wilson going to have those same durability concerns? That's my concern with Zach Wilson. Another one of my concerns is that his timing sometimes is a little bit off. Uh, sometimes he he allows defenders to get into get into a get into position to bat the ball down. But a lot of people want to knock Wilson for the competition he played and stuff like that. I'm gonna tell you right now, BYU did not have much separators like uh, Garrett Romney and Dax Milne. They're good receivers, and they were better receivers most of the time, but they were more jump ball receivers. Dak Wilson put the ball in perfect places for them to make plays and make contested catches. They didn't get much separation unless they were schemed open, but if it was one-on-one, most of the times they really did not have much separation. So because of that, I don't think a competition should be should play a factor in where you rank Wilson, and that's why I told you I think Denzel Mims is a perfect receiver for Zach Wilson. Because he's the same type of guy. He he's a jump ball receiver. You put him one on one with the corner. I'm I'm taking my chances with Mims coming down with the ball. But not only can Mims get the ball, he can jump for the ball. But he's extremely fast, so he's gonna separate. I think Zach Wilson and Mims is, are gonna make a great duo if the Jets do draft him, and I think they will draft him. Yeah, I I like Zach Wilson a lot. I I had obviously I have not had a chance to watch every quarterback yet. I know you've started to. On my based on what I've seen, I have Zach Wilson at two in my rankings, and then I would have Fields right below him, and then I would have Lance below him, and then again, as low as I've been on him, I would have Mac Jones below Lance. I will say this: there, I think it becomes a little blurred. I've I've watched four games of Wilson so far from this past season. A lot of inconsistency. I Fields. Yes, he right now like. I've watched eight games of Wilson, and my notes on Wilson, my notes on Fields are about to exceed Wilson's in just four games. Because with Wilson, it was most of the stuff that, okay, I didn't really have to jot it down because he didn't make much mistakes. I usually jot down a lot of the mistakes, and a lot of the good things I just keep in my memory. Fields is a lot of things that I'm worried about in terms of his mechanics and just his inconsistency throwing the ball. Yes, decision-making as well. And... Ohio State is a one-read offense. But what I do like about Fields is that I think you can legitimately build an offense around him if you have a zone running scheme offense and kind of use him like Lamar Jackson did when Greg Roman was there because he can run the ball really well, and he's great at throwing a deep ball. He has a great deep ball. He's very accurate at that. But sometimes the ball does come out a little bit weird. He doesn't have the tightest spiral, 
and not that much of a quick release. I'm really excited for the draft. Like, I really am because I don't know where these guys are going to go. Like, I think Trevor's one, of course. Yeah. Zach Wilson is two. But then at even that's not a sure thing, though. Yes. I, I, as much I, as we want it to be, because I, I agree a, with I, you. I think it's a sure thing. I think it's a sure thing. I really do. Then I at, hope then, so, man. Then at four, the Atlanta Falcons, are they going to take Trey Lance or Justin Fields? Or are the Atlanta Falcons going to take Mac Jones, who plays similar to Matt Ryan? Matt Ryan isn't the quickest guy. So he would be a really good fit in Atlanta because the, Arthur Smith is already working with the quarterback and they that's have not the mobile. There. Exactly. And But let's say Atlanta, just let's say they draft field just for the sake of it because I think hometown kid, it makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah. Then at six, Detroit, do they go quarterback of the future and get a Lance? Uh, you know, do they get a Lance? I'm not really sure. Do they get a Mac Jones? I don't really know. So I think Detroit might pass on a quarterback, but Carolina is not passing on a quarterback. Yeah. Are they going to go Lance? Are they going to go Jones Fields if he's there? If they if Fields goes if Fields is there at six, are the Eagles going to get him? It's a lot of stuff. That's why I said that in this top, in this top ten draft in this draft class, there might be five quarterbacks that go in the first round. Oh yeah, I don't yes. think I don't think no no, no I mean no five quarterbacks that go in the top ten. Yeah, I, I think Dak signing today hurt that. I yes, and that's why if I were Dallas, I would have not paid Dak. I would have drafted Mac Jones at ten because I think Mac Jones at Alabama. He had a great offensive line and great weapons. Yep. If you were to go to Dallas, you would have a good offensive line and great weapons. Exactly. Rookie quarterback, rookie contract, it would have been a perfect fit. But they signed Dak, so they are not going quarterback. They're going to go corner. Patrick, Probably Patrick Sertan is going to be there. They're going to draft him. But this is a crazy draft for quarterbacks. And look, I'm just going to say this. I wouldn't be surprised if Fields does drop out of the top 10. I would say with complete confidence, like full 100% confidence, the top five guys, so Lawrence, Wilson, Fields, Lance Jones, those five are going in the top 15. Unless there's some crazy issue between now and draft night, whether it's like health or something on social media, those five guys will go in the top 15. The thing about the thing about it is that this, man, is like... <sighs> Dwayne Haskins in 2018, we all thought that he was going to yeah, be top 10. And he dropped out to 15. And we know now that Washington was not going to draft him 15. He might have been there later. I'm just saying there is a chance Fields does drop out the top 10. Lance is a wild card because Lance only has one full season of him playing. If, if Lance gets drafted, that's a project. That's He's sitting for one to two seasons, guaranteed. He's not ready to play right now. It's crazy because let's say Jaguars, Jets, Falcons, Lions, and Panthers decide to go QB. That's five quarterbacks in the draft. Cowboys don't even have the chance to do that. There is a chance Lions draft a quarterback. Carolina, I think they're not sold on Teddy. I think if Mac Jones is there at eight, they're taking Mac Jones. Like I don't think they're not taking Mac Jones. This is going to be a crazy draft class, but back to these rankings – Trevor Lawrence, to me, would be one. Zach Wilson would be two, no doubt. And after that, I really don't I really don't know. I can't really make a decision, you know, because I've just started to study uh, Justin Fields. I haven't really – I haven't even went into depth with Trevor Lawrence. 
I just know when you're six six and can make every throw, I'm gonna probably put you first. But once I study more of these guys, I'll probably know. Kellen Mond, I'm not gonna study him. I'm not gonna be. I'm gonna watch maybe a couple of games, but I'm not gonna do go too crazy. I really don't really feel like it's a need. You never know. We might be looking back, and Kellen Mond may may be like the next Dak Prescott of this draft, where he gets drafted late and he does well, whatever. But I think this list, of course, it shocked everybody because Lawrence has been the talk of the town in terms of being the next Luck, Manning-type prospect. So when somebody comes out and says, no, it's Wilson, it's going to create shockwaves. But I'm telling you, Wilson had a pretty flawless season. Yeah, and like I said at the beginning of the segment, it's not a boy who cried wolf situation. This is a guy in Chris Sims who has hit the nail on the head in the past. Going back to that 2018 draft class, I mean... He nailed that, like perfect, the top five in order. And now you're looking at the past two years, he's been pretty successful. you got to at least give it a second thought here. So it's interesting. There's no question about that. This is going to be an interesting draft. I, I think it's funny because we have had like such differing opinions on Mac Jones and Kellen Mond, and those are the two guys who are right next to each other in these rankings. And that was Mac the Jones I was is, laughing at. Mac Jones is one. <laughs> now, I think it is pretty funny, but I'm telling you right now, I think, you know, somebody in the comments just said, Joel would rather have Mac Jones and Dak Prescott. Absolutely, 100%, no doubt about it. Because Dak Prescott, Whoa. Dak Prescott right now is the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. I would have never made Dak Prescott the highest quarterback in the NFL. And I love Dak Prescott. I really, I really love Dak Prescott. He's one of my favorite quarterbacks in the NFL. But that Dallas Cowboys roster is not getting better. The offensive line is getting older. Gallup is about to be up to get paid. They don't have a tight end. Their defense is suspect. The Cowboys have a ceiling. Whereas if they would have drafted a Mac Jones, they would have had so much more cat space to work with and make the roster good. So, yes, I would have... I would have went for um, value there, and I would have gotten a Mac Jones because I think he's going to be a good quarterback, even if he's just a starter. You know, I think Dak, even though he's getting paid like the, he's getting, he's the highest paid quarterback right now. I'm pretty sure Dak is not a superstar quarterback. He's a Derek Carr to me. That's what he is. I think he's a really good quarterback. He's pushing great, but he's not a top five quarterback. And you can argue he's not a top ten quarterback. And I'm not paying a top I'm not paying not a top ten quarterback that much money, which is why I would take a risk on Jones and let's see if he pans out rather than paying Dak that much money. Yeah, and they're already in a pretty bad cap situation to begin with. So now just adding this Dak contract on top of that, I it it's really not a sustainable business model moving forward here. Like I don't I don't see how they're gonna handle this cap situation moving forward. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And I don't think right now they have a championship contending roster. They don't. Washington football so, team, if they get a quarterback, that's all yeah. over. If they get an offense, that's all over. So so we'll see what happens. But, I mean, this quarterback list definitely made some shockwaves. In the next coming, probably in one or two weeks, I'll release my quarterback rankings, and I'll start, and it'll be the start of the next Chris Sims <laughs> with my quarterback rankings when everybody waits on the rankings to see when they drop and then it's there, but we'll see what happens. Th- this is a makeup. This is a make or break ranking for me because yeah, this is the first one. Yes. This gotta, is the first you one. You got to get that credibility. Yes, I have to. Yes, exactly. I have to do that. So, you know, this is make or break. We'll see what happens, but now on to the next segment, the Patriots, the new England Patriots are their first option at quarterback is Jimmy Garoppolo. 
They want him back with the New England Patriots. Bill Belichick has raved about him in the past. He never wanted to trade him to San Francisco. And I mean, what do you think about this move? Do you do you, do you do you think it makes sense? Do you think the Patriots should get Jimmy G or they should look elsewhere? I mean, you go back to you hit on it. His stint there in New England, if it was up to Bill Belichick, he would have kept Jimmy Garoppolo over Tom Brady. That was the rumor at the time and still is the rumor to this day. He worked with Jimmy Garoppolo and the 49ers on a deal to send him to a place where he could be successful rather than they had better deals on the table to send him to less successful places. But he tried to look out for him almost like he was like his protege or something. It was strange to read about, but you see that relationship back then. And I think Bill Belichick still looks at him as a guy who he could breed as the future of the Patriots, like he did with Tom Brady when he was younger and Listen, Bill Belichick is a mastermind. If he sees something in you, there's probably a good shot. You got something there. I think Jimmy Garoppolo has been really solid with the 49ers. He showed some good signs. The biggest problem has been the health and staying out there on the field. So if he could go to New England and stay on the field and they were able to surround him with some talent, which has been a big problem since, well, at the time Tom Brady was leaving and since Tom Brady left, if they could bring in some more talent on that offensive side of the ball, I think it could be a good fit. We saw how he played, and I believe it was those three games before he got hurt after Tom Brady was out because of the suspension, and then Brissett came in and did well. But I, I think it would be a solid fit because of him and Bill Belichick's relationship. I think it would be a, the perfect fit. He knows the offense well. He really strives in the short passing game. And I think Jimmy G was getting ready to take the mantle from Tom Brady and become that next great Patriots quarterback. Well, just the next great Patriots quarterback because before Tom Brady and outside of Drew Bledsoe, they really haven't had any. But I'm high on Jimmy G. I think he is a franchise quarterback. I think he is a really good quarterback. I think because... He didn't have a great playoffs with the 49ers because they ran the ball a ton and they didn't ask him to ask him to pass at all. And because he missed some he missed a lot of throws in the Super Bowl that kind of cost 49ers a game. Everybody's perspective and the narrative on Jimmy G has done a complete 360 to where now we view him as a kind of Andy Dalton type quarterback. When I don't think he's that, I think Jimmy G is a great leader. He's a great thrower of the football and his problem is staying healthy. It is durability. But when he's on the field, I mean, 27 touchdowns, 13 interceptions in his, in his first year as a starter, 102 quarterback rating and the record of 24 and eight as a starter. People forget that when he was traded to San Fran, he won five games in a row, five straight games, a team in San Fran that was bottom of the barrel. They were not even competitive. The year that Jimmy G gets injured, a torn ACL, the 49ers have the second pick in the draft. Next year, they're in the Super Bowl. That's the impact that Jimmy G makes on the team. And I don't think the Patriots get Jimmy G because I think the 49ers see that, no, this is our guy. Kyle Shanahan has came out and said it, that Jimmy Garoppolo is their guy. John Lynch has came out and said that he's their guy. But... I also have to say that trading Jimmy G does make a lot of financial sense because if they were to trade him, they would free up $24 million in cap space. But is that worth it when you're giving up a quarterback? 
Yeah, where, where, where do you go? Yes, because Nick Mullins is a free agent. C.J. Bethard is a free agent. And Jimmy G is still on a roster. But really, who knows? I think 49ers will keep Jimmy G. But the Patriots trying to make him their first option is not a bad option. It's really not. I think he fits the scheme. Josh McDaniels knows him well. And they never wanted to depart from him in the first place. They always wanted to keep him. They were forced to because Tom Brady basically forced his hand, which he has every right to do because he is Tom Brady. And that's why Jimmy Garoppolo was sent off. But I'm just saying, if Tom Brady sees Jimmy Garoppolo as a guy that he wants to get out of there because he sees Jimmy coming, then everybody else will see Jimmy coming too. Because I'm telling you, last year and what you saw in the playoffs and the Super Bowl is not the real Garoppolo. Like I said, Garoppolo is a great captain. He also has a bright smile. He brightens up everybody's day in the locker room. He has a whole package, man. <laughs> Jimmy Garoppolo is that guy, and he's going to be successful. Oh, man. I, I don't know if he could be a franchise. Like, I don't personally see him as a franchise quarterback. It, I guess it depends on how you, uh, what do you call it, define the term franchise quarterback. But I think he's more than a good option, and especially for the 49ers who don't run a a crazy difficult offense. They run a pretty simple offense. You don't need the quarterback to do too much. Like you don't need the quarterback to go out there and single-handedly win games for you. I think Jimmy G is a perfect fit there. The money is a tough situation, but again, where are you going elsewhere? If you so say, would a deal with the Patriots include the 15th overall pick and then you're looking at drafting a quarterback and in that situation are you trusting that one of the top 5 guys is falling to 15? I think that's another big risk. So and then other than that, are you going to try and trade up twice? So you're going to trade up with the Patriots to get 15 and then move up from that spot to get a quarterback. I just think it's not a great situation outside of Jimmy G. Like if you start to explore options moving on from him, unless you're talking about a Deshaun Watson trade, which I think would cost more than the 49ers would like to give up. I don't think there's many better options on the market right now for them. So I don't think it would be wise for the Niners to move on from him. But if the Patriots could pull it off, I think it's the best option available for them. I think you said it before when you were talking about uh, Joe Lombardi and Sean Payton. Familiarity is better than ability sometimes. I think Jimmy G's familiarity with the system would be huge, especially in a place like New England where that system has worked for years. And this is the thing, Jack, I'm going to say it now. The Patriots had a ton of opt-outs last season. Dante Hightower is coming back. Lawrence Guy. I, no, I think Lawrence Guy played. I know they had Patrick Chung is coming back. They had a lot of opt-outs. Next season, they're going to have a great defense, probably possibly an elite defense again, because I'm never going to count out Bill, Bill Belichick and his defensive scheme. Their offense, I think in this draft, they draft a receiver. They get a weapon because they need one badly. Uh, and I'm just saying, I did a mock draft. I did a mock draft on PFF Simulator. It's not a far-fetched idea that Kyle Pitts could be dropping out the top ten. I don't think I don't think it's far-fetched based on needs and especially if five QBs go in the top ten. Yeah, there's a possibility. There is a huge possibility. So if they could trade off for a Pitts and get a tight end, or maybe in the second round get a Pat Fairmuth out of Penn State, that would be huge. But they need to build this offense, and I think whether it's bringing back Cam Newton, trading for Jimmy Garoppolo. Whoever it may be, the Patriots have a chance to shock a lot of people next season because I think this was a down year. 
it was a weird year because of COVID, but Patriots at full strength, I will not count them out. Yeah, and if you could get Pitts at 15, that'll be the steal of the draft, in my opinion. I think he's going to be one of the best players in the draft overall, and he would fit that Patriots system perfectly. The reason I don't think he'll be there at 15, I think he might drop out the top 10 but not 15, is because Arizona is picking 14. And they need a weapon they They need a tight end. They need a tight end. So they're going to pick Kyle Pitts if he's there, no doubt about it. They might even trade up a few spots to get him. That's why I think the Patriots would have to trade up, but I don't think it's a far-fetched conclusion that he could be dropping out the top 10. But the Patriots have options. Jalen Waddle, Devontae Smith, if he drops that far. Uh, they got Rashad Bateman, maybe. Rondell Moore. Uh, Kadarius Toney. So there are a lot of guys that they can try to target. We'll see what happens, but they need to fill that position bad. Could one of those top three receivers fall to them? Whether it's Waddle. Maybe Devontae I, yeah. Smith. Devontae Smith ha- is... His is, stock's fallen since the college football yes. playoffs. Devontae Smith is the only guy because he has to be in the right system. But I think the Patriots are the right system for him because they, they excel at the short passing game. They do a lot of screens. So he fits that system. Devontae Smith has to go to the right team. And I think he, he can't he, – I don't think Smith is a player that you can place on any team, on any scheme, and he'll be successful. I think Jamar Chase is that. Jalen Waddell, I'm on the fence about him being that. I think Devontae Smith, he needs to go to the right offense and the right offensive coordinator. But now, moving off from the New England Patriots, we're going to talk about the Dallas Cowboys and Dak Prescott. So news just broke. Literally 10 minutes before we started to record this podcast, this news broke. The Cowboys are giving Dak Prescott a four-year, $160 million deal. So $40 million a year including $126 million guaranteed, and the first three years averaged $42 million a year. And the deal includes a no-trade clause and a no-tag clause, so they can't franchise tag him or trade him. And I believe as well, this is the most, this is, he his signing bonus is $66 million, and that's the highest signing bonus in NFL history. Second is Russell Wilson at $65 million. So, yeah, the Cowboys signed Dak Prescott long-term. I did not think this was going to happen. I thought this wasn't going to happen. I thought they were going to franchise tag him again, and he was going to be a free agent next season. This is really weird that it happened. I think them signing Dak long-term was a combination of the media pressure to sign him, and also sympathy for him getting hurt while playing on the tag and the Cowboys feeling like they have to make things right. And I say that not to say that Dak Prescott doesn't deserve the money because he does, and I think he's one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL, but for him to get be, for him to be getting paid more than Russell Wilson, more than Mahomes, is pretty ludicrous. It's pretty crazy. And... The Cowboys have now handicapped themselves with this current roster, which is not a Super Bowl contending roster. Them signing Dak Prescott long-term after seeing what, what the Rams were with Jared Goff, after seeing what the Eagles became with Carson Wentz, was the stupidest move that this franchise could have ever made. They don't even have a solid foundation in Mike McCarthy. We don't even know what he's going to be. This was a bad move in my opinion, and 
this guarantees to me that the Cowboys will not be sniffing the Super Bowl in the next four years. Yeah, and one of the interesting parts of this deal, just a side note, they are franchise tagging him tomorrow, I think, as a uh, as like a, a piece to make the deal work, and then they're going to sign him long-term. So once his four-year deal is up, he is an unrestricted free agent, and they cannot tag him. So he is... That's a pretty rare thing in the NFL. Usually you play out your contract, they can tag you for three years, I think. But now that they have used another tag on Dak Prescott, he'll be an outright free agent in four years. So an interesting part of the deal there. But I agree with you in the sense that it was a strange deal for me just because the cap situation they're in and where they're at as a roster, I don't think they're ready to compete. I would have felt better about the deal if we would have seen Dak Prescott play a whole season the way he did the first four or five games of the season because he was looking like an elite quarterback to start the year. It's just... And losing. Yeah, was that a product of being in games where they were down late and he had to throw the ball like crazy against prevent defenses? Who knows? He looked really good to start the season, but is that sustainable? One. Two, is he going to come back from the injury the same? It's a lot of question marks to be paying a guy the most or second most money for a quarterback in the league over the next four years. I think it's a huge risk, especially for a team. You know, if you had told me that it's the same situation, but it's Patrick Mahomes instead of Dak Prescott, it's a different story. But I don't, as much as I like Dak Prescott, I don't think he's a top five quarterback in the league. I think he's a borderline top 10 quarterback in the league. I would have him on the right side of the 10 rather than on the outside looking in. But still, I don't think a guy at that level is worth this much money especially for the cap situation they're in. The reason why you're okay with paying Mahomes is because Mahomes has accomplished something already. This is the hard truth, but if the Kansas City Chiefs don't win another Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes, his career was still successful because he brought the Chiefs their first Super Bowl in in NFL history. I'm pretty sure. They might have won before, but I'm pretty sure it was the first Super Bowl in a long, long time. So because of that, he deserves that money. Russell Wilson has brought underwhelming rosters to the playoffs, and he has he has a ring already. Aaron Rodgers has a ring already. A lot of these quarterbacks that got big superstar money have won their rings already outside of Deshaun Watson and now Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott is not a superstar quarterback. He's not an elite quarterback. Their offensive line is diminishing already. Their weapons are still there. Their defense is really suspect. Dan Quinn was hired, so maybe he does fix up their defense. He's going to run a cover three scheme. We'll see how that goes. But I just can't help to feel that this was a bad move because unless the the cap skyrockets in the next couple of years, the Cowboys are pretty much dead in the water in terms of what they can do with the roster. I just don't know how you can see the trend of quarterbacks getting paid and pay a quarterback that's not in the upper echelon of quarterbacks, especially in such a loaded quarterback draft class, which is this draft class right now, that we have five quarterbacks that have a ton of potential. It's just a weird move. Yeah, that's the problem with a, a guy like Mahomes' contract. Like, he resets the market, and then that's the bar for everybody else to shoot for. But Mahomes, like, he is far and away better than a lot of these guys who are going to be receiving contracts coming up and not meant as any disrespect to Dak Prescott. He's a much better quarterback than Dak Prescott. 
And so they shouldn't be close money-wise, but it's because Mahomes reset the market for quarterbacks that Dak is going to even get close to that. And it's just how the cycle goes, and it really screwed the Cowboys because of the timing of things. Um, But I I think you're going to see a lot of overhaul with this Cowboys roster in the next coming years. I think Ezekiel Elliott will be a guy that they'll try and look to do something with that contract. Amari Cooper is another guy. There's a few more other names, but they have so many big contracts on the books. Eventually, they're going to have to start changing things there. I'm going to do an overview of the dumbest decisions the Cowboys have made in the past couple of years. (laughs) <laughs> number one was signing Ezekiel Elliott, which, which was signing running back to a big contract. And we already know how that story ends up most of the time. Just ask the Rams with Todd Gurley. They paid an inside linebacker in Jalen Smith, big money. He wasn't even a top linebacker at the time. And they paid him big money. They paid they, the least two important positions on the field big money to long-term deals in Ezekiel Elliott and Jalen Smith. When I thought Tony Pollard was really ready to take the reins, I'm in love with Tony Pollard's game. He's looked pretty good. Yes, I really love Tony Pollard. Then, Dak Prescott. The quarterback position is the most important position on the field, and you have to take care of that position. But Dak Prescott paying him $42 million is right there with those moves as some of the worst moves because this this contract, this signing, guarantees the Cowboys will not win the Super Bowl. And when you look at the NFC East and how the Washington football team is looking, it doesn't guarantee they'll win the division. I'm not even sure yeah. they'll win the division. If, I, if, if I, the Cowboys win a division only two times out of the four years of Dak's contract, that's a complete and utter, utter failure. Yeah, I would feel better about a team like the Washington football team making making a move like this. I think they're more ready to compete playoff-wise than the Cowboys are with their current roster. Um, and, and it's not meant as a dig at Dak Prescott because I think he's earned his money and he deserved a big-time contract. But it's just about where you are as a team, as a roster, your cap situation. I don't think the Cowboys were in any position to hand out a contract like this. And I think they might have been better served moving on at the quarterback position, especially in such a deep quarterback class where they could have reset their cap situation in the next five years with a potential stud quarterback on a rookie deal. The last time the Dallas Cowboys won a Super Bowl was in 1996. So right now they're on a 25-year Super Bowl drought. If you're listening, if you're a Cowboys fan and you're watching this, Get ready for it to be 30-plus because it's not going to happen in the next four years and in the next five, if we're being honest. Wow. They are going to have a 30-year-plus playoff drought in one of the biggest markets in the NFL. In, in what the Dallas Cowboys are called the America's team. And I guess just like America, they are making bad decisions as well. <laughs> they're making another bad decision. They, this they, was a bad decision. They set themselves up for failure, I think. I think everything led to this being an impossible situation to win because Dak is your guy. You wanted to have him here long, tor- long term, but you put yourself in such a position money-wise that it really wasn't a viable option to splurge on Dak, and now they've done it, and they are going to have to pull cap Olympics over the next four years to make this work. I just don't see it. 
working out for them, especially like you said in the in the division. The Washington football team is really good. Even the Giants have showed some promise. I think the Eagles still got a ways to go, but like I don't think this makes the Eagles division you know definites for the next Cowboys? four years. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> what did I say? You said Eagles. Yeah, I think I don't think this makes the Cowboys the the division. You know, fi- I don't even know if it makes them the favorites, it, depending it on what the football team does at quarterback. Yeah, it so, doesn't. Now we're going to go into our final two segments of the episode. The next segment we'll be going into is, and wow, I think this this TV just froze up on me. <laughs> Ridiculous. So the final two segments we will be talking about is the Washington football team and the New York Giants will be previewing their offseason. And we're going to start out with the Washington football team. I'm just going to get the graphic up on the screen. Now I finally have it. The Washington football team's offseason. Let's see what happens with them. Okay. Right now, the Washington football team has $54 million in cap space. They cut Alex Smith already, which was a potential cut that they were going to have there. And they have no real cap casualties. I mean, all of their good players are on rookie deals. Look at their front, their defensive line, Chase Young, De'Ron Payne, Jonathan Allen, and uh, Montez Sweat. They're all on a rookie contract, so there's, you know, they're good there. Cameron Curl, an emerging corner, is on the rookie deal, so they don't have any roster cuts pretty much. They really don't. Maybe John Bostic, but that's about it. Then you look at their pending free agents, Brandon Scherf, Ryan Kerrigan. Supposedly, Brandon Scherf got the tag. As we were recording. I have not confirmed that, but supposedly he did. Okay. So, Ryan Kerrigan, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, Ronald Darby, Dustin Hopkins, Kyle Allen, Cam Sims. And Kyle Allen and Cam Sims are restricted free agents. Uh, Ryan Anderson and David Sharp. So, you mentioned Brandon Scherf probably got got the tag. Yes, and that was a smart move to make because he should have got the franchise tag because he's their best offensive lineman right now. But... Outside of outside of keeping Brandon Scherf, I'm really not mad if they lose anybody else outside of Ronald Darby. I think Ronald Darby played really well this past season next to Kendall Fuller. Because of that, I'd bring him back. But everybody else, Ryan Kerrigan is up there in age. You already have a dominant front four. I don't think there's a reason to bring him back. Kevin Pierre-Lewis, I think you could bring him back. He's a good linebacker. He's an, he's an okay linebacker. Dustin Hopkins, inconsistent kicker, but probably they bring him back. And, you know, outside of that, I really don't care who else leaves. I mean, I'm Ronald Darby, Ryan Kerrigan. Ronald Darby, I think, is a definite stay, in my opinion. Ryan Kerrigan goes elsewhere. Kevin Pierre-Lewis stays, and Dustin Hopkins stays. Yeah, I think Brandon Scherf was a no-brainer. I'm glad they brought him back. Well, I'm not glad as a Jet fan because I was one of my targets for the Jets. But as, you know, looking at it through the Washington football team lens, I'm glad they brought him back. I think, like you said, Ronald Darby is another guy I would definitely bring back. Uh, Ryan Kerrigan, I would let walk. Two other guys I would consider, I, I wouldn't say they were must, would be David Sharp, just because that right side of the line and the tackle spots are a little bit, que- or the tackle spots are a little bit questionable. So I would think about bringing him back, depending on what you're looking to do this offseason. And then Cam Sims is another guy. They're a little bit weak at wide receiver. Um, I don't know how they plan on attacking that wide receiver market if they're planning on splurging for one big name or going out and, and filling it out with two or three you know, lower level options. I think bringing back Cam Sims can be um, a money 
a money saving option to bring him back. I there, don't think he'll he'll require that much money. Their positions of needs right now are quarterback, wide receiver, outside of McLaurin, tackle, and inside linebacker. In my opinion, I think at the right side of right side of the line at tackle, Morgan Moses is a good is a good tackle. I think he's fine. He's manageable. I'd keep him. I think they have to address the left left tackle, quarterback, of course, and wide receiver, and. We've done a segment on this, trading for Donald or Minshew, maybe Teddy Bridgewater. Um, maybe they signed Jacoby Brissett or Andy Dalton or Ryan Fitzpatrick. In my opinion, I'm trading for Gardner Minshew. I've already said this multiple times. I'm trading for Gardner Minshew if I'm the Washington football team. I think he's a good game manager, which is what the Washington football team needs. I think he's a really underrated quarterback and can win in a good situation. And when we talk about wide receivers, there are some good ones like Tim Patrick out there. Golden Tate just got released by the Giants. Maybe he can be an option. Adam Humphreys. But the guy I'm looking at is the guy on the screen, Curtis Samuel. I want to see Curtis Samuel there because not only can he line up in the slot or outside, but he played running back in college, and he played running back some snaps in Carolina. He's a very versatile player, and he can play next to Terry McLaurin really well. Yeah, uh, at the quarterback position, I can see them doing a couple different things. Like you mentioned, the trades for Darnold or Minshew are options. Uh, a guy you didn't mention that I think could be on the table for him, Cam Newton, maybe a reunion with him and Ron Rivera. I, I don't think his year in New England last year was as bad as people make it out to be, so maybe that's an option. The well is kind of drying up a little bit. I think Dak Prescott would have been the guy they would have been after if he didn't go back to Dallas, but... You know, now they got to start to bank on some less popular options, I guess you would say, for lack of a better word. So they got a couple options there, not as many good ones as I thought they had at the beginning of the offseason. Um, I think wide receiver is another really important position. You mentioned the guy that I had in mind, Curtis Samuel, for his versatility, for his familiarity with Ron Rivera's system. You know, I think it would be a good fit, and I, I think he won't command as much as one of those top-tier receivers. He would be a really good number two next to Terry McLaurin. At the offensive line spot, I think you could fill in that hole with maybe a veteran like Alejandro Villanueva, but they definitely got to shore up that tackle spot, so I think that's somewhere to look. I would also look linebacker, um, and they have some good money, so they can afford to splurge. Uh, you know, I, th- I was thinking maybe a guy like Matt Milano would be a good guy for them to target, um, but they are really in a great money situation. I think they have the fourth most cap in the league, so... I mean, they can really go out and make some big-time signings this offseason, and they could position themselves to be the favorites in the NFC East. I like Logan Thomas, but I think they could use another tight end. In my, I would address it in the draft, but in free agency, you got guys like Hunter Henry. I don't think they go out and spend for Hunter Henry, but Kyle Rudolph just got released by the Vikings. He's a good option. Jared Cook, Jacob Hollister, Gerald Everett, Jonu Smith are some potential options. Then at tackle, you mentioned Alejandro Villanueva. I'm looking at Russell Okung. I think he's younger. He's 33. Villanueva's 38. Russell Okung has a lot of good years left, and he's a good tackle. Villanueva's coming off a down year, so I target Russell. I target Rus. I target Russell Okung. Then at inside linebacker, Gerard Davis, a former first round pick from the Lions. Maybe Jack Del Rio can rejuvenate his career. It'd be a low-risk, high-reward type of signing. Christian Kirksey, maybe. 
Neville Hewitt, who played okay with the Jets. Jayon Brown from the Titans. They're not going to be able to re-sign him. And Anthony Walker Jr., middle linebacker from the Colts, I think would be another good viable option. He's not very athletic, but he's a great locker room guy, and he's a leader, and he's an okay linebacker. And I think when you look at the Washington football team's defense, the worst group on their defense is a linebacker spot. They don't have good linebackers. So I think they have to address that, no doubt about it. But overall, I think in free agency and in the offseason before the draft, I have them trading for Minshew, signing Curtis Samuel, signing Russell Okung, and signing Gerard Davis. It's a good offseason. Yeah, and I have them drafting a linebacker too. So Gerard Davis has a low-risk guy. And then when we talk, when you talk about the draft, they have the 19th pick in the first round. And even though they were to they signed Curtis Samuel, I don't want it to stop there. You got guys in the first round like Rondell Moore, Rashad Bateman. Listen, Rondell Moore is similar to Curtis Samuel. So I'm going Rashad Bateman with the 19th pick in the draft, and I'm having a receiving core of Rashad Bateman, McLaurin, and Curtis Samuel. I think that is one hell of a receiving core. Yeah, I was also looking receiver, whether it was Bateman, uh, Kadarius Toney, maybe Terrace Marshall from LSU, who, who has you know, breeded good receivers over the last couple of years. But I think they should also go receiver with that first-round pick. And for whatever quarterback is coming in, add another weapon. Antonio Gibson, like you said, Curtis Samuel, and uh, Terry McLaurin with one of these rookie wide receivers, that would be not only a, a much-improved offense, but a really good offense. Then some other names in the draft. Dylan Radins, a left tackle from North Dakota State. Alex Leatherwood, Carlos Basham. Pat Freyermuth, the tight end, maybe in the second round they can get him. Jamin Davis, linebacker out of Kentucky. Jabril Cox, Eric Stokes, corner out of Georgia. And Brevin Jordan, the tight end they could target later. And maybe they try to risk, they take a risk on Jamie Newman. I don't think that's out of the question in the later rounds of the draft. For me, I think the draft, if this was the dream draft for me, it looks like this. Rashad Bateman at the first round in the first round, Jabril Cox in the second, Eric Stokes in the third, and Jamie Newman in the fourth. I think that Eric Stokes, uh, Washington needs a third corner. They have Ronald Darby, who he might not even be back, but let's assume he is. Darby, Fuller, and now you need a third corner. I think Eric Stokes can fill that role. And Jamie Newman, a project, and Jabril Cox, an inside linebacker. They can go Jamin Davis or Jabril Cox there. I'd lean towards Jabril Cox. I think he'd be a good inside linebacker for them if Gerard Davis is not pan out. Yeah, and you kind of took one of my picks. Uh, I think that they're another team that sitting at 19, they're not going to be in on those top five quarterbacks. So I think it would make more sense for them to sit back in the later rounds and go after a guy like Jamie Newman or Kellen Mond in the later rounds. It's the contingency plan I've given it for pretty much every team that's been looking for a quarterback and couldn't get one of those top five guys. So I would look at those two in the later rounds, uh, and you know it could be a little bit of a, a building block. Maybe you bring in a veteran this season like Brissett, Cam Newton, somebody like that, and then you could look at one of those two guys for the future, try and breed them under Ron Rivera. This is my dream depth chart for the Washington football team next season in 2021. Gardner Minshew, Antonio Gibson, Terry McLaurin, Rashad Bateman, Curtis Samuel, Logan Thomas, Russell Okung, Wes Schweitzer, Chase Rulier, Brandon Scherf, Morgan Moses. Then on defense, 
Chase Young, Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Montez Sweat, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, Jabril Cox, Cole Holcomb, Kendall Fuller, Ronald Darby, Landon Collins, and Cameron Curl. And I might have pronounced some of those names wrong. I'm not I'm not too familiar with the with the players' names on the Washington football team, but that would be my dream offseason for them. I think offense is number one. That defense is already elite. They just need to figure out that offense. And with the additions of Bateman and Curtis Samuel and Russell Okung, I think this can be one of the better offenses in the NFL. And Minshew. I think Minshew's a really good quarterback. Yeah, I think that they should be favorites in the NFC East next year. With their cap space and what they did towards the end of last season and how much they're bringing back, I think they should, you know, whichever way they end up going this offseason, they should be the favorites in the NFC East. Yep, and now we're going to go on to another NFC East team. We're going to talk about the New York Giants. Is it a potential breakout year for Daniel Jones? We'll preview their offseason right now. So, I was surprised by this. They only have $6 million in cap space. So even though they have a quarterback on a rookie deal, they don't have much to work with in free agency, but they have some potential cuts. Nate Soldier is one of them. They can cut him and save $6 million a year. Kevin Zeitler would save $12 million. That's huge, but he's actually a really good player, so that would make it tough to do that. Uh Lee Levine Tolio Toloilo, I think that's his name, is $3 billion. <laughs> he would save $3 million. And this might be a surprise cut, but Jabril Peppers, I mean, if they were to cut him, they'd save $6 million. And do they really need Jabril when they have Xavier McKinney, a safety they drafted, Logan Ryan playing safety, another guy in Julian Love who he, he plays corner but can play safety as well. It just seems for me that if they if they want to, because they have two big time free agents, Leonard Williams and Dalvin Tomlinson, is it worth keeping Jabril if you can't keep both Leonard and Dalvin Tomlinson? I don't think it is. You know, in my dream offseason for the Giants, I want them to keep Leonard Williams and Dalvin Tomlinson, so I wouldn't be surprised with cutting Jabril. But if the Giants were to cut everybody but Jabril Peppers. They'd have $26 million in cap space. If they were to cut Jabril, they'd have $32 million in cap space. And I think $32 million is enough to re-sign Leonard Williams and Dalvin Tomlinson. So I think that would make sense. But like, did, did they release Golden Tate already? Yeah, they did. Okay, I wanted to make sure I read that right. So they're pending free agents. State. Leonard Williams is one. Kyler Fackrell, Cameron Fleming, Dalvin Tomlinson, Jabal Sheard. And they all of the running backs outside of Saquon are free agents. Wayne Gallman, Deion Lewis, Devontae Freeman, and Alfred Morris. I mean, in my opinion, I just want them to bring back Leonard Williams and Dalvin Tomlinson and maybe Cameron Fleming for some offensive line depth, but that's about it. Yeah, I think that Leonard Williams is the guy they definitely have to bring back. He was so big for that team last year and has really exploded onto the scene for them after struggling with the Jets the last couple of years he was there. I think the change of scenery was big for him. He was a huge part of that defense. Um, I would lean towards keeping Cam Fleming. I would love to keep Dalvin Tomlinson too, but if it came down to those two guys, I think I would go with Fleming over Tomlinson just because I think that defensive line is a little bit more set than the offensive line, and I would prioritize keeping that offensive line as familiar as possible. They got better as the season went on last year. I think keeping that familiarity would be good. 
And as much as I wouldn't want to lose Tomlinson, I think they're in a better position to lose him on that defensive line than they are to lose Fleming on the offensive line. So the positions of need, I think they need a center, they need a tackle, and they need a number one wide receiver because right now they have number twos, but they don't have a number one. So I, they don't have the cap space to target a number one. So they, they're going to have to get that position in the draft. But in terms of center, Ted Caras is, is a guy, maybe Austin Ryder, and at tackle, Matt Filer, or maybe a reunion with, with Mike Remmers, even though Mike Remmers was pretty bad with the Giants. Then at guard, maybe Colegio Semele, G.J. Fluker, or a guy who recently got rele- released in Gabe Jackson from the Raiders. He could be a huge addition. But honestly, with their cap situation, it's going to be hard to target any of these free agents. It just seems like the team that they had last year is a team they're going to have this upcoming season they're not going to make much improvements. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. With the money, it's going to be really tough to add anybody big time. I think the draft is going to be the big move for them. Um, at center, a guy I was thinking was Alex Mack, but you know, I, I think they're going to have a tough time adding anybody substantial in free agency just because like, the big position that you would want to splash at, I think, for them this offseason would be wide receiver, and I don't think money-wise they'll be able to be in on even like a Curtis Samuel mm-hmm. because I think he could get bigger money from a team like Washington who has great cap space and has just as much of a need, if not more, for a guy like Samuel. So I think the draft is going to be the place where the Giants make their bread and butter this season. So in in the draft, they have the 11th overall pick. Wide receivers, I think they could target Jalen Waddell. Maybe if Devontae Smith falls there. Terrace Marshall Jr. is too high for me. That's more the second. Maybe Tutu Atwell in a second or Elijah Moore in the second, and maybe in the later rounds, Tamario Ontario could be a target. Offensive line, Elijah Vera Tucker, Christian Derisaw, Rashawn Slater, Sam Cosme, Tevin Jenkins. These are all guys they can target. For me, I think they have to go offensive line. I know that a number one receiver is a priority, but I think an offensive line, some offensive line depth is even more of a priority. I mean, right now, they don't have much. If Kevin Zeitler gets cut, which might be possible, because if they don't have a trade partner, he's probably going to get cut. They don't have any guards. Will Hernandez is is average at best. Shane LeMayhew was pretty bad last season. He started about like nine games, I believe, but he wasn't anything special. Andrew Thomas flashed late in the season, so I think you're okay at tackle. And Cameron Fleming, he's a free agent, so if he's not back, who's going to be the right tackle? And at center, like Nick Gates, do you want him to be your longtime center? It, I, I just think they need to get an offensive lineman. And in my opinion, that guy is Elijah Vera Tucker. Because Christian Darisol, I like him. Rashawn Slater, I don't think he'll be there. But Elijah Vera Tucker, I like him more than Darisol because Vera Tucker can play guard and he can play tackle. He has feet like a tackle, so he's more of a tackle. And... That added versatility just makes him more of an option at that 11th overall pick because I think he's the best value. He's the best bang for your buck at number 11. I was thinking the same thing. If you want to go offensive line, you could. Darisaw Slater, Elijah Vera Tucker, one of those three, if not two or three of those three, will be there at 11. But you could also go with a weapon at 11, whether it's Smith, Waddle. I don't think Chase will be there. I think Chase is going to be the first wide receiver off the board. But one of those three guys, 
or Kyle Pitts might also be there at 11. I know they have Evan Ingram, but I've read people saying that Kyle Pitts is projecting to be more of a wide receiver at the NFL level than a tight end, or at least a, a you know a wide receiver in a tight end's body. So I don't think it would be a bad pick at all to get him at 11. I think you could play him and Ingram at the same time. So you know if they wanted to go weapon, there are more than enough options at that 11th overall pick. And there's more later in the draft, too. Amon Ross St. Brown is another guy I was thinking of. Chris Olave is a guy later on they could target. Um, Dwayne Eskridge later like later on in the draft, you know, going going deep into the draft. So they, they could go weapon in the with the 11th pick, but I think it makes more sense to go offensive line there and target wide receiver later on because this is a deep wide receiver draft. Yeah, maybe centered later on, too. Quinn Miners, Landon Dickerson, Creed Humphrey, Josh Myers. Those are some options. Three of those guys, probably all four, will definitely be will not be picked in the first round. Yeah. They'll be second round and further picks. So I think they also need to get a center. Nick Gates is okay, but I think they can use an upgrade. Then I think they need an inside linebacker to complement Blake Martinez. I think Jamin Davis, I'm really high on Jamin Davis. If they can get him in the third round, I'd be okay with it, maybe in the fourth. But I wouldn't spend a, 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 a top three-round pick on an inside linebacker. But then I think also cornerback. They need another cornerback. Tyson Campbell, Greg Newsom the second, Kelvin Joseph out of Kentucky, Eric Stokes, Paulson out of Adabo, I think that's the name Adabo, yeah. and Asante Samuel Jr. These are all guys you can target, but for me, the priority in this draft is to get offensive linemen, linemen, receiver. Then you look at defense, but I think it's all about getting linemen and then receiver and then everything else. They could also look potentially edge later on in the draft. Carlos Basham and uh Quincy Roche are guys they could look at later on. But I agree, offense is the main priority in the draft. They'll be able to get great options at two positions of need at 11. And then even later on in the draft, I think offensive line and wide receiver, this is the draft to be in if those are your two holes. And I think they'll have a good chance of filling those two holes with some viable options to start next year and make an impact from day one. So my dream draft for the Giants are to dra- is to draft Elijah Vera Tucker at 11. In the second round, Landon Dickerson then Eric Stokes later, then to Marion Terry later in the draft because I think he has a really he has a really high upside. And my depth chart for them would be on offense, Daniel Jones, Saquon, Sterling Shepard, Darius Slayton, Dante Pettis, uh, Evan Ingram, Andrew Thomas, Will Hernandez, Landon Dickerson slash Nick Gates, Elijah Vera Tucker at the other guard spot, and then at tackle, Mike Remmers, slash Mike Matt Filer or slash Cameron Fleming could be that tackle spot. Or Vera Tucker can play tackle there. It really depends. But then on defense, I have them having Dexter Lawrence, Dalvin Tomlinson, Leonard Williams. In my offseason, I want to keep both of them. So I want to, I'm going to sign resign both of them. Lorenzo Carter, Blake Martinez, O'Shane Jimenez, James Bradbury, Eric Stokes, Julian Love, Logan Ryan, and Xavier McKinney. In my offseason, I have them cutting Jabril Peppers, which I know is a hot subject because he is a really good player. But I think them drafting Xavier McKinney makes Jabril expendable. So because of that, I think it would be a wise financial move to do it. But I don't I don't think they will cut Jabril. So Jabril can easily be slotted here. And this is pretty much the same team. You know, the Giants just really have to hope that Daniel Jones breaks out in his third yep. year and is more comfortable with Jason Garrett 
because this team is not getting much better because they don't have much cash space to do so. I'll say getting Saquon back, I think, will be a huge help if he can come back as the same guy. Getting a receiver in the draft, because they certainly will do that, will be a huge help. And staying healthy, hopefully for them, knock on wood, would be a huge help because injuries really derailed them last season. I think it hurt Daniel Jones' development. And he still showed some signs late in the season that he was at least improving a little bit, especially in that turnover battle. He still had issues with it towards the end of the year, but he got better. And that's going to be the main key for him is the turnovers. Can he cut down on the turnovers? If he can, I think he could be a solid option for them for the next decade. But it's all about cutting down the turnovers. I think having those weapons will help him. And if they hit this offseason, they could be in the race for the NFC East next year. Yeah, I agree. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Picasad Podcast. This was episode 74. As always, if you guys enjoy our podcast, you're a fan of the podcast, give us a review and write a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Picasade Podcast and on Twitter at Picasade Pod. Thank you guys for listening and we'll see you guys next time.